Today's sermon text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. God, we want to behold our King. We want to see Him. That's why we gather. Because we in our weakness, in our blindness, in our pain, our suffering, in our exhaustion, need to see hope from our King. This text today seems to only offer despair but we know what comes next. Would you reveal to us what you've been up to, that we would be able to walk in faithfulness no matter what storms come our way, no matter how dark the world gets. Help us to behold our risen King. Amen. It's easy to rejoice in life when circumstances are going really well. We love marriage or singleness as long as we get all the pleasure and the freedom that we want from it. We love school as long as we're learning really interesting things. We've got good teachers and friends around us to encourage us. Or our jobs are a joy when we're very successful and we get affirmation from our bosses. Or we enjoy church when our service is appreciated and our needs are met. But Jesus told us to expect persecution. He said not everything would go easily for us. So what happens 
when great pain comes into your life. And it's much harder to see the hand of God at work to keep you enduring through the challenges. Trusting Him to work His purposes. Many of you know that my wife, my family has been through some significant health struggles over the last couple of years. Very painful. I've preached through tears on some days because of it. And at various times in this two-year journey, I've felt like healing is just around the corner. I just know it. I'm confident it's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month. And then Satan twists the knife digging deeper. And it takes a turn for the worse. And I'm led to the point of despair, crying out, God, I can't do this anymore. Who are you? Where are you? Why would you do this? I'm trying to be faithful. Ready to turn my back on God. What is it that keeps me from taking that final fateful step of cursing my Savior? When all your hopes and dreams come crashing down in this life, how do you know that God is still present? Where do you run when your relationships are falling apart? Your health fails you. Where do you go to know that God is still in control? The only way is to open your Bible. See God's hand working through every single detail of history. And then to embrace the identity of your humiliated King. See the hand of God working through every single detail, even the terrible ones in your life. Realize that all of Scripture, all of world history and your entire life is orchestrated to put on display the glory of our crucified King. All of it culminates in this one moment, the humiliation of the Son of God. We see in this text today how God orchestrated human events for us to know that He was in complete control even at the darkest moments in history. If you can see God's hand at work in the crucifixion of the Son of God, you can trust that He is at work in your suffering too. He is at work in those who embrace the identity of their humiliated king. See, Matthew wrote this story, this section, very specifically to focus our eyes on that reality. Even though the story gets very dark, he's tying together all of these Old Testament threads of light in this one moment to give us hope, to show us that God is in control. We're going to see that even through the king's inauguration in verses 27 to 31, where it looks bleak. And then in the king's exaltation on the cross, where darkness enshrouds the whole world in verses 32 to 44. It all unfolds so unexpectedly. But as we've seen, this is how God works, isn't it? He doesn't reveal to us the entire plan. He asks us to trust Him. Remember that Matthew has written this gospel biography to show us that Jesus is the King of Israel. He started in chapter 1 with a a lineage, a genealogy to show that David, or Jesus is in line of King David, the great King. Jesus has authority to sit on the throne. And then we see how Matthew ties Jesus' life to all these Prophecy promises to show that He is the promised Messiah. 
Jesus has authority over sin, over demons, over all of creation. Even over life and death itself. Matthew wants us to build, as we read this story, build in anticipation with this coming King. He's ascending to His throne. He's triumphing as He walks into Jerusalem. The King has arrived. He's going to conquer His enemies and finally bring the peace that we all desperately want. But suddenly things have taken a sharp turn in the wrong direction. A mob arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. He's facing this wicked, unjust trial before the corrupt priesthood. He was traded by Pontius Pilate for a slimy, greedy thief. This isn't how it was supposed to end. This isn't how my life is supposed to go. Perhaps there's more going on than any of us can see. So let's search for answers in our text in the King's inauguration starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Clearly, this isn't the inauguration of the king that anyone had expected. We've moved from the story of triumphal entry to Trials, judgment, and now execution. It continues to get darker and darker for Jesus and His disciples. All of the hope of Jesus bringing a a flourishing kingdom on earth is now all but snuffed out. The candle is just barely flickering. But it's still alive. After receiving the death sentence from the Jews and Romans, now the soldiers have moved in to carry out the orders of the execution. But not without a little fun first. The Romans were notorious for really pouring it on their ill treatment of these crucifixion victims. They did everything possible to make an example of anyone who dared threaten Rome. Only Caesar had the authority to say that someone could be king over a certain land. So Jesus coming saying, yes, I am the king of Israel is a threat to Caesar and his entire empire. Threats like this not only need to be stopped, but they need to be prevented by making an example of anyone, putting on display what happens to anyone who threatens Rome. And so first, they would scourge their victims. We saw that in verse 26, that involved tying them up to a big post, exposing their back, and whipping them repeatedly with a whip that would rip their flesh open on their back, pouring the blood out. And then they stand him up, put a crown of thorns on him, take off one of their soldier capes and wrap it around like he's some king and put a stick in his hand. And they bow down and pretend to honor him, mocking him. You have no authority over us. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you follow Jesus... If you claim to be a Christian, this 
is your king. Behold, your humiliated king. This is the one you claim to follow. The whole world mocks your master. So to show that he has no power over them, they take his crown off and his robe off and they beat him with the stick. And if you're reading this story for the first time, you don't know what happens next. You, you wonder, what in the world is going on? It all seemed to be so promising, so hopeful. Why would this happen? It was obvious before what God is doing, and now it seems like God just pulled away. All the Gentile nations were supposed to bow down to Him because He's such a good Ruler, he loves people. He uses his power to help people. And now it's unraveling so quickly. What in the world is God doing? It kind of looks like those who follow Jesus have wasted their lives. If you follow Christ faithfully, there will be points in your life where you wonder, am I wasting my life? This question ought to haunt you. At times, what do you do when face following Jesus hurts? Where are you going to look when the darkness hides his face? Let's see what hope Matthew gives us, hopefully, in the king's exaltation in verses 32 to 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Oh, when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put in the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Crucifixion is a terrible way to die. It was deliberately designed to be demeaning, humiliating, not just even to a single person, but culturally oppressive, a weight over a people. My ESV study Bible had a great summary of its gruesomeness. Crucifixion was widely believed to be the worst form of execution due to the excruciating pain and public shame hanging there naked. Hanging suspended by one's arms eventually caused great difficulty in breathing, which would only be alleviated by pushing up with one's feet to take the weight off the arms. But that motion itself would cause severe pain in the feet, arms, legs, and back, causing the exhausted victim to slump down again, only to be nearly unable to breathe once more. Eventually, the victim would succumb to suffocation. 
if he had not already died as a result of the cumulative effect of all the physical trauma inflicted on him. Horrific experience. We know all these details about how crucifixion worked, but interestingly, as you read this account from Matthew, you read none of them. He barely even mentions the crucifixion. Verse 35 mentions it almost in passing when they crucified him, as though it was just a minor note in a more important story Matthew's trying to tell. Matthew's not just interested in giving you the bare facts of some event, like we would start out one of our reports on July 2nd, 1922. It's not how Matthew tells a story. He wants us to grasp something greater. So usually as I'm studying a passage for a sermon, I'll break it up into different verses, phrases, and then I ask, how does this one relate to this one? And how do these two relate to these two? Putting it all together to give us a main point that we should take home and apply ourselves. But as I was doing that this week, I realized this is impossible. If you read through verses 32 to 38, it's really difficult to do. It's almost like each verse is an independent thought, just an observation where Matthew went, well, this thing happened, that interesting thing happened, and that rather insignificant thing happened. But a good Bible student knows that that's not how Jews write. Matthew is writing in in a very particular way to put specific words and phrases in there to draw our attention back to the story that God has been telling. Every word, every phrase to communicate a greater reality. We've seen Matthew write in such a way throughout the Gospel as he ties every single event in Jesus' ministry to another person, some Old Testament promise, an event or a theme that's been told. He wants us to see Jesus is fulfilling God's plan even through this dark moment. The disciples couldn't see it when it was dark. Just like we can't see it when the darkness crowds in our suffering. But as Matthew looks back after the events and he looks upon it, he says, I see it. He's opening his Bible going, it's everywhere. i got to tell the world. And so each of these seemingly unrelated verses is connecting dots of various biblical themes so that you can see the beautiful story of God's redemption in Christ weaved together so intricately, culminating in your King hanging on a cross. So that when you feel like you're bearing a great cross, you can know God is still at work. So let's briefly look at each of these verses one at a time. We don't have time to go as deep as I would like. I'll try to go as fast as possible. But this is incredible, extraordinary what Matthew has done here. Look at verse 32. The soldiers command Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. This is a rather interesting detail. It's only mentioned here and in Mark and Luke in the same spot. We never hear about this Simon ever again. Who is this guy? All we know is his name, and he carried a cross. But that's all Matthew wants us to know. When's the last time we heard of the name Simon? Simon Peter. Remember when Simon Peter in chapter 16 declared, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
He was praised for that proclamation, but Jesus said, I am going to be crucified. Peter said, no, I will never let that happen. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The same exact thing that this new Simon does. He takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Same exact words. Take up his cross. And then later, after the Last Supper, Jesus predicted his death again. And Simon Peter responds, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And what did Peter do? Denied him three times. He fell away. He promised to be with Jesus unto his death. But where is he? Nowhere to be found. And yet, here's another Simon, gladly taking the cross on his shoulder and following him to his death. He helped him carry it all the way to a place called Golgotha in verse 33. What is Golgotha? We've been told in the text that it's a translation of a word that means skull place. And people wonder, where did that word come from? There's no documented etymology of it. They assume that maybe the the rock formation that the cross was on looked like a skull. Or maybe so many people have died there. So there's piles of skulls. It's called the skull place. But we know that Matthew writes much more deliberately than just giving us that kind of detail. Consider the significance of what is happening here. The promised son exalted over a head of death. This was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The serpent had deceived those image bearers, Adam and Eve, tricked them into sinning so that they would die. But God promised He would reverse death by sending a son of Eve to crush the head of the serpent. And throughout the Bible, we see this theme of serpents' curses and God's healing throughout. And especially comes quite dramatic in the book of Samuel, where Saul is anointed as king in 1 Samuel 11. He faces his first battle as the anointed king against King Nahash. Nahash is not just a name, it's a word that means serpent. The same exact word from back in the garden. We're supposed to read Saul and Nahash's battle as a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve. But we know that Saul fails. He falls into temptation. But there's another king that comes, King David. He's anointed in chapter 16 and we see in 1 Samuel 17 that he has a battle with his own serpent warrior. The great Goliath of Gath who wears armor that's scaly like a serpent. Goliath taunts and mocks David and his God. And while he's laughing, David charges at him, knocks him down, takes off his head. And Samuel gives us this small detail that he brought the head of Goliath of Gath back to Jerusalem as a trophy that God will find victory over the serpent. So we fast forward to this climax of history and we see all these promises and shadows about the snake crusher finally find their fulfillment at the skull place. The place where Jesus was bruised by the serpent, yet he stands in victory, crushing the skull of Satan. Incredible detail that Matthew writes here. And then we see in verse 34, they offer Jesus bitter wine to drink. But he refuses to drink it. Another unexpected detail, and I said, 
why in the world did he put that in there? Well, throughout the Bible, we see that wine is often symbolic of God's judgment, pouring out a bitter cup of wrath on a people. So he says in Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51 that he is going to pour out his bitter cup of wrath on both Israel and all the nations. Jesus will drink that bitter cup in verse 54, but he has not yet been lifted up on the cross, so he refuses to drink it. Only after he has bore that curse for Israel will he drink the bitter wine symbolizing his completed work. I'm just skimming the surface of these deep waters that Matthew wants you to dive into with these one-liners. We keep going in verse 35. We finally have this important detail that Jesus was crucified. They nailed him to the cross and lifted him up. But instead of giving us the detail of that, he gives us a different detail. The soldiers removed his clothes. Psalm 22 verse 18 said that they would divide his garments among them. But there's more going on than fulfilling a single psalm. This this whole section actually, go read Psalm 22 for yourself. Almost every one of these lines has a fulfillment in, from Psalm 22. But there's more than just this psalm happening. The whole Old Testament is being fulfilled in this line. If anyone partook in our school of theology this last semester, Justin had given us a, a summary at the end of class on a biblical theology of clothing. Seems a weird thing to study, doesn't it? but it finds its fulfillment right here on the cross. The story started as we always do back in the garden where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed until they sinned. They realized they were naked. They felt such shame and God had to provide a covering for them. And then the whole Old Testament tells this theme again of shame and nakedness, but God providing covering. So we see Noah get off the ark. And there's a story of him being exposed in his nakedness and his sons cover him. Ezekiel 16 tells about this child who's exposed in nakedness and God provides a covering as a picture of his relationship with Israel. that He's going to cover them. But they're so wicked, he tells them in Isaiah 47, that he is finally going to remove their covering and expose their nakedness and shame. Yet here in the crucifixion, here is Jesus hanging on the cross bearing the identity of sinful Israel, utter nakedness, uncovered, exposed in his shame, bearing the wrath of God to cover his people by his righteous blood. Even the rather insignificant detail of sitting down and watching him in verse 36 is full of meaning. The word watch here doesn't just mean to observe something. It means to guard They stayed there and guarded him. He was condemned to stay outside the city and die. So they were charged with guarding him and making sure that happened. He would die as an exile. Again, this theme starts back at the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve. When they were kicked out of the garden, Adam was given the charge to guard the garden. He let Satan in and wreak havoc in there. So God kicked him out and put an angel at the entrance to guard the garden. And the whole Bible tells the story of exile after exile, 
keeping people from entering the rest in the promised land. Yet now we see Jesus taking that identity upon Himself, being crucified outside of the city as an exile guarded by the pagan Romans. And then they place a sign in verse 37 above His head saying He's the King of the Jews. Start back at the beginning again. Adam and Eve were supposed to be kings over the garden. Expand the reign of God throughout the earth. And they failed. And then we see this pattern of failed king after failed king after failed king throughout the Old Testament until we get to Jesus. The only righteous king to ever live, but they crucified Him. As though He was bearing the punishment for His entire ancestry of failures. Just briefly on verse 38, Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors. Meaning he was included with the sinners. He was counted as a condemned criminal. Remember when James and John earlier in the Gospel of Matthew said, hey, when you are exalted to your throne, can we sit at your right hand and your left? They had no idea what they were asking for. Because this is what it means to be exalted on the throne crucified, bearing the sin of the world, trusting the Father to exalt Him in due time. Jesus became one of them. One of us. A condemned criminal who set free like Barabbas because He took the guilt that we earned. All of this cosmic, glorious, pan-historical reality crammed into a few random, seemingly random verses of Matthew's telling of the crucifixion. On our side of the resurrection, we can see, wow, look what God is doing. It's incredible. But right in the midst of it, the darkness, the confusion, nobody could see it. What was going on? We see that Matthew and everyone else completely missed it in verses 39 to 44. The common traveler walking by derides him, wagging their heads, as prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 7. Then the leaders of Israel, the priests, scribes, and elders, ironically, use the very words of Psalm 22, verse 8 to mock him. The words of the psalm that show exactly what's going on, they use to mock him. And it's so bad that even the two criminals on his right and left revile him. The king who was so beloved, so adored, followed by thousands, is suddenly alone, utterly abandoned by his friends and mocked by everybody else. But we can see when we look at the rest of biblical history that this is the sovereign plan of God. This is exactly what needed to happen. Every thread of history, every page of your Bible is culminating in this event leading towards this moment. Jesus, the King of Israel, the Lord of all creation, humiliated on a pagan Roman cross. But the story doesn't just end here. What's the purpose of it all? What was it to accomplish? We know that after this event, at the end of the Gospels, there's so much more Bible to be read. There's a story of this new people called the church. The goal of the crucifixion and resurrection wasn't simply to vindicate God, but to 
create a redeemed people who would fulfill their original design. All of these themes in Matthew that he references are further fulfilled in us, the church, in you. Jesus bore the curse so we could look to him and be blessed. Jesus became the suffering servant so we could become joyful servants. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent so we could have victory over temptation. Jesus took the shame of nakedness so we could be covered in the Father's delight. Jesus became a cursed exile so we could enter into the promised rest. Jesus took upon Himself a crown of thorns so you could receive a crown of glory. Jesus became a condemned criminal so we guilty rebels could walk free. God orchestrated the darkest moment in all of history for your eternal joy. So if you repent and trust in Christ, you can know with certainty that He is working all things together for your good. Yet even if you've repented and trusted Christ, confident in all these promises, knowing that you have a home in heaven awaiting you, you still wonder, what's going on now? I haven't fully experienced these promises. I still fall into temptation. My body's still broken. I feel so full of shame. This is the way we are called to live. This is our witness in this in-between world until He comes. Until the day He returns, we must embrace the identity of our humiliated King. It's kind of an oxymoron, that phrase, humiliated King. Brought low and lifted high? Jesus reigns from a cross? Or as Revelation puts it, the Lamb slain standing on His throne? This is our identity. Our life must be shaped by this reality until He returns or calls us home. We must be an example to the world of this humiliated King. An article I read this week said, this thing that just struck me as I was studying this. In a mysterious and very real way, our lives are an expression of His and increasing, in so increasingly conform to Jesus' own life. As we mature, His joys and His sorrows increasingly become our own. The more faithful you are, the more you will experience His sorrows as well. But for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. And for the joy set before you, the promises, the blessing, the freedom, we take up our cross and follow Him. Peter realized this when he wrote 1 Peter 4.13, We should rejoice to share in Christ's sufferings because it proves that He is alive in us. Paul wrote it too in 2 Corinthians 1. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in His comforts too. You can be confident in all of your suffering. When you experience the greatest trials and injustices, when you're the target of Satan's attacks, when you're mocked for your righteousness, you feel like a foreigner among the people, be confident that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and being prepared for an eternal weight of glory. One commentator summed up this entire section saying, the ultimate explanation of the cross 
is neither Jewish hostility nor Roman injustice, but the declared purposes of God. How will you respond when those sufferings come into your life? Will you run from Him? Deny Him? Join the scoffers who say you're wasting your life? Be quick to open your mouth and come to your own defense? Or will you look to Christ hanging on the cross as the fulfillment of every single Old Testament story? The entire Bible is written to point to this singular event. This man. Forty different authors writing over 1,500 years from different parts of the world and all different walks of life. All writing together to make this one glorious thread ring true that Christ the King was crucified and risen from the dead to redeem a people for Himself. In the midst of your pain, look to this incredible Spirit-inspired Word. Open it up. Marvel and say, where else will I go? This humiliated King has the words of eternal life. See that God's hand is present through all of your suffering. You can know that if God is at work through the humiliation of the Son of God, the greatest tragedy in the world, He's also at work in your life too. All of creation groans for the redemption of your bodies. Because creation has been watching for thousands of years. God is faithful to keep His promises. He knows It knows it's going to happen for you too. Face your trials with joy, knowing you get to share in the sufferings of Christ, your humiliated King. Knowing also that it, when you endure, you will share in His glory. Let's pray. God, we long for that day. In the midst of my sufferings, I have cried out so often, Jesus, come quickly. God, we've seen His face today. You've revealed Christ to us more and more through Your Word, through the songs of Your saints. It just makes us long all the more to be taken up in glory. We long for that day, but until then, would You help us to endure? Would You help us to embrace this identity as sufferers sharing in the suffering of Christ? Suffering with joy, not grieving as those without hope. God, lead us to faithfulness that our example of Christ may call many more sons to glory. Amen.